Conversations. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Med Conversations. I uh, hope you enjoyed that jingle for the 50th time. Uh, you've got Rahul here, and I'm joined by the lovely Rebecca Foskey to my right. Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about rheumatoid arthritis. So prepare yourselves for a blisteringly exciting podcast. Uh, so we'll start off with the case. We've got Jane, a 65-year-old female smoker who presents with painful swelling of her hands worse in the morning. She's noticed herself becoming more tired lately as well. So we wanted to try something different and get some learning objectives going for this podcast. So first thing is we want to get you to understand the epidemiology and definition of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, secondly, we want to talk about the clinical manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis. Then we'll go on to talk about some investigations you can use in making the actual diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. And lastly, a summary of treatment options for rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, let's get started. Let's embark on this journey. Mm. All right, so the first one you said definition. Mm-hmm. So how would you define rheumatoid arthritis, Beck? So it's a chronic inflammatory disease, and we don't really know what causes it. So it's got an unknown etiology, and it causes a symmetric peripheral polyarthritis. And that's important. We'll talk about that more in another podcast, I think, how you differentiate between the different kinds of arthritis. Arthritis. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is a, a buzzword or a set of buzzwords there, symmetric peripheral polyarthritis. And so it's the most common cause of the chronic inflammatory arthritis in the world, uh, and it affects 0.5 to 1% of the population across the globe. Uh, like most autoimmune diseases, it's more common in females than males with a 3 to 1 ratio. There's a genetic component to it, but there's also environmental overlay with smoking being a major risk factor, which interestingly normally causes rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP positive disease, and we'll talk about that more later. In terms of incidence, uh, it increases from 25 to 55, and it stays about the same from 55 to 75, and after that, the incidence decreases. Mm. It has a whole variety of extra articular manifestations, which include things affecting the lung, heart, nerves, vessels, and the blood. And there's been a lot of change lately in the therapies available for rheumatoid arthritis with new biological and small molecule therapies, which have massively improved outcomes in the last two decades. So let's talk a little bit about the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis. So Beck, what's a synovial membrane? So that's the thin layer of connective tissue that sits over the joints, the tendons and the bursae. So RA is something to do with inflammation of that, is that right? That's right. So rheumatoid arthritis causes inflammation of the synovium, um, which proliferates and then causes bone erosion and thinning of the cartilage underlying it. So, so as you'd imagine, that inflammatory infiltrate is made up of inflammatory cells. So T cells, B cells, plasma cells, dendritic cells, mast cells. And uh, the T cells are the ones that make up the majority of this. That's right. So essentially, it's a breakdown in your body's self-tolerance, and that can be stimulated by a bunch of environmental factors. And I think it's important that we emphasize again that this is an autoimmune disease. That's right. So in terms of presenting features, the usual presenting symptom is due to inflammation of the joints, tendons, or bursae. So we had Jane who said she had early morning stiffness. Um, but the important thing about early morning stiffness is it has to last for like at least half an hour to one hour and then ease with activity. So a little bit of early morning stiffness is pretty normal. And do you know what joints are typically affected? So Rebecca? I understand that it starts off first of all involving the small joints at the hands and the feet. The feets, both feet. That is correct. That is correct. And the initial pattern can either be monoarticular, which means one joint, oligoarticular, which means less than four joints, or polyarticular, which means five plus joints. 
So in terms of the joints, we'll go through them in a little bit more detail now and talk about which joints it affects. Basically, the wrists, the MCPs, metacarpophalangeal joints, and the PIPs, the proximal interphalangeal joints, are the most affected. And progressively, this inflammation leads to chronic irreversible deformity. So starting off with the hands, uh, looking firstly at the palm surface of the hand, the flexor tendons become inflamed, called tenosynovitis, and that results in a decreased grip strength and trigger fingers where you get stuck in a flexion because the tendon gets stuck underneath the pulleys of the hand. So that's why you ask people to squeeze your fingers. Mm. Uh, the next thing you get is ulnar deviation of the fingers. So you get subluxation of those MCP joints, metacarpophalangeal joints, and your fingers start to push towards the ulnar side of your hand. Can you tell us about a swan neck deformity, Beck? Yeah, so a swan neck deformity is a hyperextension of the PIP, the proximal interphalangeal joint, with a flexion of the DIP. Very good, Beck. As I always say, clear communication is important as a doctor. Um, so a boutonniere deformity is another one that you can see, and that's basically the opposite. So you get flexion of the PIP and hyperextension of the DIP. So you get form like a little rectangle half a rectangle it's, with your finger. It's a pity you can't all see us just mm. trying to make these moves with our fingers. It, I imagine you're doing the same thing, driving your cars and just pressing against the steering wheel, trying mm. to get that flexion of the PIP in. It's worth Google imaging these things. Yeah, uh, you really need just to see it. makes it a lot easier. And the last one is a Z-line deformity of the thumb. So you get subluxation of the thumb MCP and hyperextension of the first IP. So... As you can see what uh, Rahul's yeah, doing yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so... That's, that covers everything that you see in the hands. In terms of the feet, they're also in, involved quite early. And do you know which joint in the feet is involved really early, Beck? Yes, it's the MTP or the metatarsal phalangeal joint. That's right. So where your toes sort of join onto the rest of your foot. Um, and then inflammation of the rest of the foot happens later and they can eventually develop a flat foot or a pes plano valgus as it's known in uh, rheumatology terms. Um, the large joints like the knees and the shoulders are often affected in established disease, but usually not early on. And the other really important one is the cervical spine, so the atlantoaxial joint in particular. So mm. where's the atlantoaxial joint? So that's in between C1 and C2. That's right, that's right. And so this is really important. Like it, it evolves slowly over time that eventually it can compress their spinal cord and cause a compressive myelopathy. Um, so yeah, it, can, it can require surgery eventually, but they don't usually present with the neurological symptoms. You usually know that they have some problems with their joints and they just get worse and worse and worse when it's really severe. They start to affect their spinal cord. Mm. So what about the rest of the spine? Yeah, good question. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, it rarely affects the thoracic or the lumbar spine. Um, and then the only other joint to really talk about is the TMJ, so the temporomandibular joint. You get some radiographic changes on x-ray there, but they're usually not clinically significant. That is, the patients don't get much pain. Mm, okay, so we've talked about the joints that are affected, so mostly the hands and feet early on, and then some progression to the to the C-spine and the shoulders later on. What about extra-articular manifestations? Mm, the extra-articular manifestations of rheumatoid are really important because there are a whole bunch of them that are particularly associated with it, um, and they can develop at any point. I mean, usually they develop after the arthritis, but sometimes you can get it before they actually get joint pain. And the people who tend to get the extra articular manifestations are smokers, people who have early onset of disability from their joint pain, and people who are positive for serum rheumatoid factor, and we'll talk about that again later. The most common extra articular manifestations, Beck, do you know what they are? So the most common ones are subcutaneous nodules, secondary Sjogren syndrome, pulmonary nodules, and anemia. That is 100% correct. So we'll go through them in a bit more detail now. So firstly, you have the constitutional stuff, which means like weight loss, fever, 
fatigue, malaise, depression. Um, and these features generally reflect a high level of inflammation in the body. But it's important to know that if a patient has a really high fever, you should think about whether or not they developed a rheumatoid-associated vasculitis. Right, okay. So the next one to think about are the nodules, which you mentioned, Beck. Do you know how many patients, rheumatoid patients, get nodules? Quite a lot. So I think it's around a third, 30 to 40%. That's correct. So most of them are subcutaneous. They just sit under the skin and they develop in areas of repeated trauma, like the forearm, uh, over your sacrum, or in the Achilles tendon. And they're, they're, do you know how, how you'd sort of what a rheumatoid nodule would feel like? So they're firm and they're not tender and they tend to sort of stick to whatever they're stuck to. So the the periosteum or the tendons or the bursae, so they move with those things only. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, Rarely they can become infected or painful, but that doesn't doesn't happen very often. Um, And you can also find rheumatoid nodules in the lungs, the pleura, uh, the pericardium and the peritoneum, or obviously less common than just under the skin. So secondary Sjogren's syndrome, what is it, Beck? Yeah, so I didn't realize this, but Sjogren's syndrome is most often secondary rather than primary, and what it causes is dry eyes. And what do you know the, the fancy medical name for that? Sika, or xeropthalmicus sika, I think it is. Okay. Mm. And then the other one is a dry mouth, or xerostomia. Uh, this affects about 10% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the next thing is the pulmonary manifestations. Now, the most common one is pleuritis. So it's like pleurisy. It can cause a bit of chest pain, dyspnea, sometimes a friction rub if you're skilled enough to hear that on auscultation, and an effusion, which is exudative. Mm. Um, but they can also get inter- a form of interstitial lung disease, which bodes a very poor prognosis. But it's not as bad as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And what's the important thing about rheumatoid-associated interstitial lung disease, Beck? The important thing is the prognosis. So it actually gets better with immunosuppressive therapy. That's right. So important to recognize. Um, whereas if they don't, if it's not rheumatoid associated, don't, don't bother recognizing. It's fine. Um, <laughs> cardiac it, often there's club subclinical manifestations. Or club uh, cynical. Club cynical. Um, Another episode on that one. RA in the heart. Um, it usually involves a pericardium, and on autopsy, fifty percent of people have pericarditis, Which but they is don't. Amazing. Yeah, right. But they most people never get any symptoms and never know about it. More rarely, you can get a rheumatoid-associated cardiomyopathy, and also rheumatoid people have twice the rate of mitral regurgitation as the general population. Lastly, uh, the vasculitis. Um, so this is like kind of an important thing to know about rheumatoid arthritis. It occurs in people with chronic disease who are seropositive, so positive for rheumatoid factor, and have low complement. And how do vasculitis in general present, Beck? Yeah, so they get petechiae or purpura, and they can get digital infarcts or even gangrene. They can get a, a sort of lace-like pattern called levito reticularis, which is often in the lower limbs, and sometimes some ulcers, which, as with the interstitial lung disease, respond well to immunosuppression. That's right. And associated with that vasculitis, it can affect the small nerves, so you can get a sensory motor polyneuropathy associated with it. Um, another two, even though I said last for the last one, uh, <laughs> the hematologic. Um, so they get The most common thing is they get a normochromic normocytic anemia. And that relates to the degree of inflammation. It's a, it's a uh, anemia of inflammatory anemia, as it's otherwise mm-hmm. known. Um, they can get a thrombophilia, as an acute phase reactant during times of uh, inflammation, and also felty syndrome, which is kind of one of those buzzwords. Doesn't happen that often anymore. Less than one percent of rheumatoid patients, but it's a triad of neutropenia, nodular rheumatoid arthritis, 
and splenomegaly. And you will get a question on that in a medical student exam at some point. It was one of our, our medical school's favourite questions mm. for some reason. I thought it was a really common. Less than 1%. There High you go. High preponderance of rheum- uh, rheumatologists on our uh, examiner's board, I think. Mm-hmm. Probably had something to do with it. So lymphoma is the other thing that rheumatoid people get. Um, and they get two to four times the amount of lymphoma compared to the general population. Mostly diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Okay, so... I'm confused. We've just listed off about eight different things. So we'll just go through again the, the broad headings under extra articular clinical features. So they can be constitutional, they can be nodules all over the place, secondary Sjogren syndrome, pulmonary, cardiac, vasculitis, hematological or somewhat related lymphoma. Yeah, that's right. So that's perfect. Um, There are also some associated conditions with rheumatoid arthritis, which affect your chronic disease management. And they also sort of are one of the things that causes major morbidity and mortality for rheumatoid arthritis patients. So one of them is cardiovascular disease. And people with rheumatoid arthritis have increased atherosclerosis and increased rates of congestive heart failure. Um, That's probably mainly due to all the inflammatory milieu floating around in their mm. blood. And so I, I haven't fact-checked this, but uh, I was referring a patient to a cardiologist the other day, and they told me that hypercholesterolemia is less of a risk factor, less of a predictor for ischemic heart disease than rheumatoid arthritis. Well, Maybe we should fact-check that before perhaps, spreading this to perhaps. all of our listeners. But anyway, I, I, it's I believe in, I have heard that as in, well. It's, it's important, pretty, yeah. so, so it is one of the risk factors you should um, think about. Osteoporosis is another thing that rheumatoid arthritis people get, and that's multifactorial. So you've got constant inflammation, they're not as mobile, and they use steroids intermittently, which we'll talk about later to control their disease. And then hypoandrogenism, um, not a huge thing to know about, but um, men sometimes need androgen replacement therapy. Mm. Okay, so just a recap of all those clinical features, a uh, med conversations question break, if you will. Um, the first, what are the first joints to be affected, Beck? Okay, so hands and feet early on, mostly the MCPs and the PIPs. Mm-hmm. And then what happens after that? Which joints become infected later, affected by later disease? So then you get into the atlantoaxial joints, rarely affecting the rest of the spine, and your shoulders and your knees, those other large joints. That is correct. Um, and then the most common extra-articular manifestations? Subcutaneous nodules, secondary Sjogren syndrome, pulmonary nodules, and anemia. Look at that. She can get into any training program she wants with that kind of answer <laughs> on the water round. Um, so back to our case. We had Jane, our 65-year-old smoker. Jane tells us that she, her mother had rheumatoid arthritis, so there's a genetic component there. She also had some low-grade fevers at night, and she gets particular pain in her fingers and feels that she's unable to open jars as easily as before. All of these symptoms settle down after about 9 o'clock when she begins work, uh, and you contemplate your next move in diagnosing this dilemma here. Okay, so it sounds like RA, but are there any classification criteria by any chance for many large bodies in the European Union? No. No, that's the only thing about it. So there's a 2010 classification criteria from the European League Against Rheumatism and the American College of Rheumatologists, a much more bland name, um, where a score of six uh, fulfills definite rheumatoid arthritis. Now, this criteria is actually used to distinguish patients who are likely to develop chronic joint damage and disease, but um, they do have this score of more than six is definite RA. Um, so I think the, the important thing whenever you get told about any of these classification criteria is is just to remember what's in it. And you can always look up the score, but it's really important to, to know what's in, it, what's in any of these tools to help you yeah, get an what, idea what, of what's important when you're meeting a patient. That's right. What, what, what's actually important and what do they consider important in, in diagnosing or classifying rheumatoid arthritis? So let's start with lab results. Um, first of all, what sort of labs do you think you could order, Beck? That would be helpful. So, so you're going to look at the inflammatory markers, so CRP, ESR. 
That's right. And so they tend to be, these are non-specific and they tend to be just elevated in rheumatoid arthritis and that's variably elevated. So someone who's having a very acute flare or very severe flare, it can be quite high, you know, sort of bacterial levels high. Um, what about the, what else? So speaking of non-specific, rheumatoid factor. Yeah. So, so, so that helps differentiate <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis from other polyarticular diseases, but it is found um, in about 75 to 80% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis as well as patients who have Sjogren's, SLE, chronic infections, and even about 5% of the healthy population. So yeah, it's not right. that useful yeah. as a rule in. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it is tied to some other things like prognosis and likelihood of developing other conditions, but overall for the diagnosis, it's not super helpful. Um, there's another antibody, Beck. Have you heard of it? Have I have. Heard its name? So it's called anti-CCP or... Uh, actually, I'm going to be struggling with knowing what that's. Citrullinated peptide, yeah, um, terrible name. Um, so basically, it's got a similar sensitivity as our, as rheumatoid factor for RA. So remember, sensitivity is about your false negative rate. So it's still there are still a fair few false negatives, but it has a much higher specificity. So a lot of much less false positives. So it's about 95%. So if someone is anti-CCP positive, there's a pretty good chance that they've got rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it's also sort of helpful for predicting having worse outcomes. Um, what about synovial fluid analysis, Beck? So this is not a test that you would routinely do in somebody who you're considering rheumatoid arthritis in. But, but what it does is it excludes a crystal arthropathy. And it also shows the results reflective of an inflammatory state. So you'd expect the white cells to be between 5,000 and 50,000 because this is, as we said, an inflammatory arthritis compared with around 2,000 for any non-inflammatory conditions. That's right. And for those of you who haven't been studying, crystal arthropathy refers to gout or pseudo-gout, something where you get crystals in the synovial fluid which causes inflammation. So that's very good. Those are most of the lab tests. Now moving on, you might think, hey, let's get some pictures of the joints, but you don't ever do that. That is not something you ever do in rheumatoid arthritis. Nah, just kidding, you do. That um, was so confused. <laughs> so you basically want to, the main point of joint imaging is that you can diagnose, but more tracking the progression of rheumatoid arthritis, particularly in trials. So most commonly x-ray is used, but it only really tells you about... The bones. The bones. So you can't see a lot of anything else. Mm. Um, you can sometimes see that the soft tissue is a little bit swollen, but it's not It's not really great for that. Um, and there's like sort of four main rheumatoid arthritis features on plain x-ray. Do you know what they are, Beck? Yeah, so periarticular osteopenia, which is very hard to see, soft tissue swelling, symmetric joint space loss, which is easier to see, and subchondral erosion is also easy That's to see. Right. And if someone has severe rheumatoid arthritis, well, you probably already know about it, but they, um, they get severe destruction of the joints with subluxation and collapse of the joints. Um, what about MRI and ultrasound? Do they have any utility here, Beck? Yeah, so they're a lot more sensitive, and you can see synovitis, tenosynovitis, and infusions, mm, effusions, that, rather. That's right, all that soft tissue stuff. So MRI is great. It's got a great sensitivity. You can pick it up even before you know they get the joint manifestations, but it's really expensive, and you mm. know, often you, the cost you will prohibit you from using it. Ultrasound with something called Power Doppler, which is a great the name. Power Doppler. <laughs> yeah, is really good at detecting erosions and synovitis, better than x-ray, um, and that's becoming more and more commonly used. It really depends on who's doing the ultrasound. Like all ultrasounds, you know, if you get someone who's not that great with the ultrasound machine, it's mm, not going to be a great test. Operator dependent. That's okay. right. So Back tell to me the about case. Jane. Mm. So what bloods do we order? Well, we ordered an anti-CCP and a rheumatoid factor, as well as the uh, non-specific inflammatory markers, the CRP and the ESR. 
as well as a full blood count. And we also ordered an LFT and a UEC because we're very forward thinking. We want to see how her renal function is and her liver function is before we start any therapy. Um, so the results of those tests are anti-CCP and rheumatoid factor are strongly positive. Remember, those are sort of continuous results. So they can be weakly positive, strongly positive, or negative. Hers are strongly positive. Uh, her full blood count is normal, but her CRP and her ESR uh, are elevated. Her CRP is 62, her ESR is 50. Mm. So you being the smart doctor that you are, you go on to order some x-rays of her hands, and that just shows signs of soft tissue inflammation, but no actual destructive bony disease. So... You come back and you tell Jane she has rheumatoid arthritis and she looks concerned. She asks, what's going to happen to her? Beck, what's going to happen to her? Well, this is a question that I always find hard to answer and it's particularly difficult in rheumatoid arthritis. There's no simple way to predict the clinical course. But around 10% of people with arthritis that fill the criteria that we talked about earlier... For definite RA from the, from the guidelines... Will undergo spontaneous remission in six months. So not too sure about the utility of those those criteria. Seems but to be a common theme in rheumatology. I'm not sure about the utility of rheumatologists on the whole, but... Uh, yeah. I think they're great. Yeah, I'm sure you do. So, so <laughs> ten, 10%, 10% of people undergo spontaneous remission in six months. But what happens to most people is they have a waxing and waning intensity of a chronic disease that they have for the rest of their lives. Mm. 50% of people with rheumatoid arthritis are unable to work 10 years after they're diagnosed with the disease. So it's pretty disabling. And their life expectancy is three to seven years shorter than the general population. So you call the local rheumatologist and ask him for some advice on what to do with Jane. And he says, put her on 20 milligrams of prednisolone for two weeks daily. Uh, give her some naproxen, which is a non-steroidal, and a PPI to prevent any stomach manifest side effects. Um, and you refer him to Jane because he bought you lunch two years ago and it was a pretty damn good lunch um so treatment of ra beck what do you know okay so it's mostly directed by the clinical disease activity there are a few scales for assessing that but we won't go into them there we'll just go by gut feeling Mm. and uh let's let's talk about all the different classes of medications so we're going to go through some lists here so we'll try and keep it structured the different categories are non-steroidals glucocorticoids conventional dmards which are disease modifying anti- Rheumatic drugs. drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and, e two four referred to as DMARDs because it's much easier. And and these can also these can be conventional or biologic. Mm-hmm. And then there's small molecule therapy. Mm. Most com- most cases use a combination of DMARDs as well as things that are going to help with the symptoms, the NSAIDs and the glucocorticoids. That's so right. Hit me up. Explain about the NSAIDs for us. Let's start with some symptomatic stuff. So NSAIDs used to be a mainstay of therapy before we actually had more than three medicines available to treat any disease. So. Uh, Analgesia and anti-inflammation are the main things that NSAIDs do for you. So it's COX-1 and COX-2 inhibition. And they're used now as adjunctive therapy for symptom control once you've got everything else going. Um, The clinical trials suggest that they're roughly all the same for rheumatoid arthritis, all the different types of NSAIDs. So ibuprofen, naproxen, indomethacin, whatever it is you want to use. And the key thing is to minimize the side effects of gastritis and renal dysfunction. That's where that PPI comes in and, and really educating patients to take it with food. That is correct, yeah. So glucocorticoids are the next symptomatic thing. Now, these guys actually do inhibit the disease process a little bit, but uh, we, these days we minimize the use of glucocorticoids because of all the side effects you get from steroids, and that's a whole podcast in itself. But you can use glucocorticoids and rheumatoid in multiple ways. So what's, what are some of those ways, Beck? Okay, so firstly, you can achieve control of the disease before the DMARD therapy takes on. Um, you can give them in a one- to two-week burst for an acute flare of the disease. Or you can give them chronically for disease control in in patients with difficult to control arthritis. 
And lastly, you can use glucocorticoids as intra-articular injections for any oligoarticular inflammation. That's right. So if someone only has one or two joints affected, which is a bit unusual, but if someone has that, then you can just give them intra-articular injections of glucocorticoids. Um, the European League Against Fighting Rheumatism, or whatever they're called, recommends a bisphosphonate for anyone getting more than five milligrams per day of prednisolone. So that's something to keep in mind. So that's to prevent the osteoporosis associated with the, with the disease and with glucocorticoids. Mm. Um, so those are, those are your symptom management slash mild disease inhibiting sort of stuff. But now we move on to the big guns. And th- everyone needs to be on one of these, and that's the DMARDs. So we'll start with the conventional DMARDs, um, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. So these slow or prevent the structural progression of rheumatoid arthritis, and they take about 6 to 12 weeks to, to kick in. Um, the most commonly used examples these days are methotrexate, that's number one, that's first line, mm. hydroxychloroquine, sulfasalazine, and leflunamide. Okay, so what do you can tell us about uh, methotrexate, Peck? Okay, so, so it is first line. It stimulates adenosine release from the cells, and it has some side effects, which you might already know about. It causes some um, hepatotoxicity, which is why we like to check the LFTs first as a baseline. It can cause pulmonary damage, fibrosis, and myelosuppression. So for all patients who are on methotrexate, one way to reduce any GI symptoms, liver enzyme changes, or stomatitis is to actually give them folate. So methotrexate is a, um, you could loosely describe it as a folate antagonist. Mm. So giving the folate can go some way to counter those side effects. That's right. That is right. Um, so the folate, you give them daily folate, it's about one milligram, and that's recommended for all patients on low-dose to moderate-dose methotrexate, which is rheumatoid doses. Um, leflunamide is another DMARD, and it has similar efficacy to methotrexate, so usually used as a second line or an alternate therapy. Hydroxychloroquine is not as good. Uh, it doesn't actually slow down the progression of disease, so it's used more for early disease or as an adjunctive on top of methotrexate or on top of leflunamide. Um, and sulfasalazine falls into that category as well, though it's a little bit more efficacious than hydroxychloroquine. Minocycline, gold salts, penicillamine, azathioprine, cyclosporine, these are all anti-inflammatories that aren't really used these days, either because they don't work that well or because they have a lot of side effects. So we might just talk a bit more about the things that aren't really used anymore. Yeah, yeah, we'll a full history of every drug that used to be used. For <laughs> yeah, so the rheumatologist, your mate, commences Jane on some methotrexate and folate, which appears to be going well aside from some nausea. So we've talked about the NSAIDs, glucocorticoids, the conventional DMARDs. Now, if we remember back to that list, we also had biological DMARDs and small molecule therapy. So biological DMARDs revolutionized rheumatoid arthritis, you know. Rheumatologists get hard on every time they think about this or whatever the female equivalent is in the last decade. These are proteins, proteins, that's important, that target cytokines and cell surface molecules. So what's the mainstay of, uh, of biological demands? So TNF inhibitors. That's right. Um, there's, a, there's a few available, but infliximab is the one that I see the most, or mm. etanercept. Yeah, that's right. There's a few others, which we'll talk about later, but they're abatacept, which is not a TNF inhibitor, Rituximab, which is a CD20, uh, anti-CD20 drug, and tocilizumab. So we'll talk about those ones. But for the TNF inhibitors, TNF, what does TNF stand for? Don't do this to me. <laughs> In front of everybody. Tumor necrosis factor. That's right. Tumor really? necrosis. Yeah. Tumor oh, necrosis factor. And that's a critical mediator of joint inflammation. So someone smart discovered that. And then another smart guy said, hey, let's block that. And then maybe that'll help with all these joint inflammation diseases. So there's five available, as Beck was saying. There's infliximab, adalimumab, golimumab, sertolizumab, and etanercept. 
<laughs> so in the US, if you ever go there, these things will be advertised on TV. There's, uh, there's ads all the time for adalimumab on TV just to do the general population. It's crazy. Um, so all of these are shown to reduce signs and symptoms. They slow the radiographic progression of rheumatoid arthritis, and they improve function and quality of life. Okay, so do you give them by themselves or with methotrexate? No, so the TNF inhibitors, yeah, you usually give them with methotrexate, alongside methotrexate. So it's usually someone has tried, in fact, in Australia, you have to have tried methotrexate and failed or progressed on methotrexate, and then you can go to a TNF inhibitor. Mm. Side effects-wise, what what are we talking about? So it's it's an immune... um, immunosuppressant, so an increased risk of infections, reactivation of latent TB, TB, so you need to check if they've got TB before you start them on this. And um, there's also some contraindications to think about, so chronic hepatitis B infection for similar reasons, and interestingly, class three or four heart failure. Yeah, so they worsen heart failure. Um, The other thing is, since they're uh, antibodies, they obviously have an immunologic effect and they can cause adverse reactions at the time of injection. So something to consider, they usually need to be given in a hospital mm. um, at every, some sort of uh, period. The other biologicals, we'll just smash through these quickly because it's kind of advanced rheumatology stuff. Even the TNF inhibitors, you know, you'd be well into a rheumatologist before someone was commi- um, you know, deciding on that. But the other biologicals, there's one called anakinra, which is an IL-1, interleukin-1 antagonist. Rarely used for rheumatoid arthritis now because they weren't that effective, but they're used for some other diseases, rare diseases. Abatacept inhibits T-cells, also reduces the d- uh, disease activity in clinical trials, and that's used alongside a DMARD. Rituximab, everybody's favorite drug. It's a CD20 chimeric, which means it has mixed human and mouse um, components. It's an antibody, which has anti-inflammatory effects that we don't really understand, even though we use it very regularly. And it's used for refractory rheumatoid arthritis with alongside methotrexate. And tocolizumab, what's tocolizumab, Beck? So that's an anti-IL-6 antibody. Mm. Yes, I'm reading that off the screen because it's <laughs> not important for medical students being tends to know yeah, all about. Yeah, don't worry too much about it. But also, again... Basically, I think a pretty good rule is all these immune therapies tend to be associated with increased infections and some blood stuff. Um, small molecule inhibitors, the last class of drugs. So these are separate to the biological DMARDs. These are really, really new, um, just so that if someone mentions it, you've kind of heard of it. And these are new therapies for people who don't respond to biologic therapy. And the main one used in rheumatoid arthritis is tofacitinib, which inhibits JAK1 and JAK3 of mm. polycythemia vera. Uh, fame, except that was Jack too, um, and these mediate cytokines and like all these things. That's about how deep my understanding of it goes. Um, they're effective in randomized clinical trials and can be used as monotherapy or combo with methotrexate. So that's tofacitinib. So just to summary or summarize all those treatment options, because it's kind of a blame in the face. Do you want to have a go at that, Beck? All right. So the classes of medications are NSAIDs and glucocorticoids. Conventional DMARDs, including methotrexate, which is first line. Biologic DMARDs, which you might introduce if the uh, methotrexate isn't working or if it's contraindicated. And small molecule therapy, which is an emerging field of treatment. That's correct. That's correct. Okay, so back to the case. You see Jane two years down the track and her joints have stiffened up and become more deformed. You call up your friend, the rheumatologist, and remind him it's been at least four years since he bought you any dinner or kickbacks. Um, at the end of the phone call, you mentioned that Jane might have progressed something like that on a methotrexate therapy. So he s- sees her again and starts her on adalimumab after carefully testing her for hepatitis B and latent tuberculosis, for both of which he was negative. So let's hear a summary of rheumatoid arthritis. I hope that was a satisfying case. Did that satisfy you deeply, Beck? Not really. What happened no. to her next? Uh, it doesn't matter. She died seven years <laughs> earlier than planned. <laughs> exactly. She lived a loveless marriage, died seven years earlier, never came to terms with the existential angst. And you got a really good dinner. The end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All um, right. So the, so the summary is, it is, rheumatoid arthritis is the most common inflammatory arthropathy. 
It is chronic, symmetrical, polyarticular arthropathy. And we've said this in various other summaries throughout this episode, but it affects the hands and the feet first, but also the C-spine, shoulders and knees. And there are many extra-articular manifestations. Hit me up, what are they? So mainly the constitutional ones, the nodules, which can get everywhere, pulmonary stuff, and hematological com- complications. All right, and then we talked about some blood tests. Rheumatoid factor is poorly sensitive and specific, and anti-CCP has a much better specificity. Joint imaging is good for monitoring progress and sometimes even for diagnosis. You should start treatment with a DMARD. Methotrexate is the first line. And for those who do not respond to methotrexate, biologic therapy, which consists mainly of TNF inhibitors. That is correct. So, everybody, that is a summary of something that I did not know much about before this podcast. I hope I've enlightened both you and myself. I hope I've become enlightened through this process. Uh, Maybe Beck as well. I can Um, see it in your eyes. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Once again... Get on our Facebook, give us a like. Thanks, guys.